Some people may seem surprised to hear that my father, Billy Graham, and Her Majesty, Queen Elizabeth II, were friends. It's unlikely, after all, that an American Southern evangelist and a British monarch would have anything in common, but they did. Their friendship was built on a shared love for Jesus Christ and belief in God's Word. He admired that she spoke publicly about her faith in Jesus Christ. He also had a strong connection to the people of the United Kingdom. This story reaches back to a time when my father's ministry was just beginning at the end of World War II, and it was his first trip abroad. Buckingham Palace has announced the death of Her Majesty Queen Elizabeth II. When a sovereign is crowned, it's recognized that it's only temporary. And that crown will someday be worn by the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Elizabeth II, by the grace of God of the United Kingdom of Great Britain and Northern Ireland. Queen Head of the Commonwealth, Queen of Scots, Defender of the Faith. God sent into the world a unique person, neither a philosopher nor a general, but a saviour with the power to forgive. Jesus Christ, the Prince of Peace, and an anchor in my life. When Queen Elizabeth II was crowned, the Archbishop of Canterbury laid the crown on her head, and here is what he said, I give thee, O gracious lady, this crown to wear until he who deserves the right to wear it shall return. You can watch uh, that uh, little historical uh, portrayal of Billy Graham and Queen Elizabeth on, on YouTube if you want. You just uh, type in and search Billy Graham and Queen Elizabeth. But the uh, point uh, that I wanted to highlight from this video uh, as we go into this series again called The Crown, which is about the sovereignty of God, is that even Queen Elizabeth recognized that even though she was the ruler, the monarch of the British Isles and the Commonwealth, that she was only a temporary ruler until Christ Jesus came again. And the Archbishop of Canterbury made it clear in his presentation of that crown when he said, I give thee, O gracious lady, this crown until he who has the right to wear it returns. And that symbol of the royal nature of her role was also a symbol that, we, that the Archbishop and Queen Elizabeth wanted every one of us to understand is that it is God himself who is the sovereign, the king, the ruler of all the earth, and that he is the one that is coming back again to wear that crown. And yet on this earth, there are people who wear a crown in recognition that they rule over something, 
those that serve Christ say, and like Queen Elizabeth said right at the beginning, I pray, pray for me that I might serve you my whole life and that her faith was in Jesus Christ, that he was the cornerstone of her life. And I don't know if you recognize this or not, but uh, when the Spirit of God came upon the believers, there was a power that was transferred through the Spirit of God to each and every one of you to be king upon this earth, to rule as queen and king by the power of the Spirit of God. How's that? The Word of God gives us power in the name of Jesus Christ by the power of the Holy Spirit to preach this gospel, to heal the sick, to cast out demons, and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor, just as it did with Jesus. We have a kingly role here on earth, that we are sub-leaders or sub-servants of the King of kings and Lord of lords, just like the queen was ruler over a part of this world, but we as God's people are also called to take up the sovereign role that God has given us to say to the world that he has come, that he is king, he is Lord of lords, and I serve my master Jesus Christ in this role. It is the scriptures itself that speaks to us about what it is that we are called to do and how it is we are called to live. And that representation, like George mentioned about with his neighbor and, and, and uh, Sharon did with her neighbor, that we are called to live out this kingly role with the people around us. And the Bible itself is the way in which we communicate this word of God, the role that we are called to play. And it's in these scriptures that we have the teachings necessary, the record so that we can go into the world and live as Jesus lived, as a servant to the world, but yet representing the king and his authority. What does that authority look like? Well, it, it looks like this. I have come into the world, Jesus said, to serve, not to be served. He came into the world and he washed people's feet. He didn't ride in, uh, in on, a, on a stallion in, uh, in Jerusalem on, before he was crucified. He came to love and to show love and to help us to understand what it means that God loves us. That's our kingly role to take up the authority and the power of the gospel and share that with people around us. How are we supposed to know that unless we know the scriptures? Today, I want to take a look at the power that comes from knowing the scriptures. This book is one book with one theme and one author. When you read it, you have to come to it with a set of principles and a set of ideas about how it's written because unless we do it correctly, we're going to go off on tangents and miss what the Word of God is trying to teach us. And one of the principles in reading the Bible is this idea of unity. That all of the parts go together to tell one story. So if I pick up this Bible and I begin reading at the front, I've got to read it to the back in order for me to truly understand the scope of the story of God. And when I read a passage of Scripture, then I should be reading it within its context so that I understand why it was written and to whom it was written. So that I have the full understanding, the best understanding that I can about the unity of the Scriptures. 
Now, if somebody comes to you and says, yeah, but the Bible is filled with all kinds of contradictions, then they're not reading it with a sense of unity. They're trying to pull it apart and take individual, unique passages and take them out of context and not put them in the full context of the Scriptures. Because I believe that the whole Bible interprets itself. And if I come to one passage and I say, well, that's a contradiction and we can't believe that, then either me or uh, what I'm reading is not complete. Either my understanding is not complete or what I'm reading is not, the understanding is not complete because somewhere in the Bible, there's going to be this unity of the scriptures that teaches us the whole counsel of God. And so if I'm reading something very small and insignificant or maybe one or two verses or I pull this out of here and there and I'm not able to see it in its fuller context it's because I've not read the whole Bible or read the scope of the Bible or understand that this is a love story from God that takes us from one from the beginning through to the end and it's one story told by one author with one theme and that's the Holy Spirit. A man named... Uh, so I just, well, okay, I, I want to share with you a couple of scriptures here. <coughs> the principle of non-contradiction. If two parts seem to be in opposition or in contradiction to each other, our interpretation of one or both of these parts must be in error. Let me take a look at uh, Leviticus chapter 5, verse 6 for a minute. Just follow along with me. When you bring to the Lord as a penalty for your sin a female from the flock, either a sheep or a goat, then you must bring to the Lord as a penalty for your sin a female from the flock, either a sheep or a goat. This is a sin offering with which the priest will purify you from your sin, making you right with the Lord. So this is how the sacrificial system began. Remember, in the Old Testament, you had to bring a lamb into the temple. The lamb was slain. Um, I was in Jerusalem, and they said at the Passover, uh, there was so many lambs slain that the, literally the gutter in, from the temple into the river was flowing with the lamb's blood. And every person who came to the temple had to bring a lamb, or a family had to bring a lamb in order to be slain, to pay for the sins of the people in the Old Testament. But then we get the passage in John chapter 1, verse 29. This is John the Baptist speaking about Jesus. He says, the next day, John saw Jesus coming towards him and said, look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. So now there's a progression. There's a lamb that was slain, and now John the Baptist says, look, this is the lamb who takes away the sin of the world. We know that Jesus was slain. And this is from 1 Peter 1, verse 18 to 19. For you know that God paid a ransom to save you from the empty life you inherited from your ancestors. And it was not paid with mere silver or gold, which lose their value. It was the precious blood of Christ, the sinless, spotless Lamb of God. So I just want you to take that in its full scope. It began with literal lambs being slain, sheep being slain for the sins of the people, and Jesus comes along and he becomes the lamb. He becomes the one that was slain. So he takes on all of our sin. And the New Testament writer says, God paid for your sin through the death of Jesus Christ. And so now you have the whole counsel of God from beginning to end telling you one story with one theme through one author, the Holy Spirit. And when you read your Bible, there is... Um, uh, 
pieces like this, stories like this, information, theology, our understanding of who we are and who God is, and it happens over and over and over again when we read the text in its completeness and its full uh, scope, and we begin to understand that there is a a storyline of how sin needed to be taken care of and how Jesus came and how that was paid for us. Now, what some people will do is they'll say, well, you know, back in those days, uh, people made sacrifices, right? They sacrificed their children, they sacrificed bulls, and they sacrificed lambs, and, you know, it was a way for them to appease the gods. And as uh, time progressed, uh, they started moving away from that towards the wrath of God and the justice of God and and the love of God, and Jesus came. And eventually, they started talking about the love of God. And they put those sacrificial things behind them, and they didn't talk about that anymore. Well, that's a a bit of twisting of what the Bible actually says, because the whole Bible talks about sacrifice. There's sin. It needs to be paid for. In the book of Revelations, it's just as true in the book of Revelations as it is in the Gospels as it is in the Old Testament. And the God of wrath is still the God of wrath in the Old Testament and in the New Testament. But the love of Jesus Christ is the fulfillment of that storyline. We have the whole counsel of God now speaking to us about what the Scriptures are intending us to understand. Now... Um, Why is this a message to be preached on in church on Sunday? One of the things that I want you to listen to and understand today is that without reading your Bible with that understanding in mind, is that we can pull things out of context or we can get a chopped up kind of sort of version of the whole truth of God. And knowing your Bible and reading it and spending time with it gives you a fuller understanding, a deeper understanding of the whole counsel of God. And then there's the, the human component to this, right? It's one story with one author, the Holy Spirit, with one theme, and yet it was delivered by 40 different authors, people, human beings. And they were written to a certain context and to a certain place. How are we supposed to deal with that? One of the things that we have to do is we have to recognize that God's Spirit wanted to speak to a group of people in a certain time, in a certain place, for a reason. And when we read the Scriptures, we have to keep that in mind because it cannot mean to me what it never meant to the original authors or the original audience. So when I try to interpret this for my life, or I try to take something out of it to apply it to my life, I have to remember that it's in a context. So for instance, the book of Psalms were written as song lyrics to be uh, shared during worship services, and that context is important, but they're so raw and they're so real about emotions that there's nothing like them in the Scriptures. The Gospels are uh, bio- biographies uh, from four different contexts, from four different people. The letters in the New Testament are written for a specific purpose, and we only have usually half of the dialogue. It's like listening to a phone call conversation. I was sitting listening to AJ yesterday talk to Elaine, and it was, took me three quarters of the conversation to figure out it was Elaine on the other side of the line. And when you read some of the letters in the New Testament, you have to realize that They probably wrote Paul 
questions. As a matter of fact, there's a whole bunch of places in the New Testament where it says, now about what you asked me about this and what you asked me about that. Knowing the context is so helpful in order for you to get as close to the heartbeat of the Holy Spirit as possible when you read the Bible. Style of material is kind of important too, right? There's different styles of material in the Bible. It's kind of like reading um, uh, an app for the newspaper on your phone, right? You go to your phone, you realize that some things are just ads. It's not news. It's just an ad. And you realize that some things are op-ed pieces. They're opinion pieces. They're not news. And other pieces are, are uh, more about storyline and telling you a larger picture, a larger... All of those, we just assume knowledge of those. Well, we need to learn them of what happened in the Scripture. A man named Frank Gabelline said this. He said, the Bible is a, is a single purpose. It was given to reveal the love of God as manifested in the divine provision of salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. This is its aim, and sound interpretation must never lose sight of this aim. Consequently, it's a serious misleading error to regard the Bible as a source book for science or for philosophy or any subject other than its central theme of the deity in relation to humanity. Did you catch that? This is about God's love story. And we do this book a disservice if we try to pull science out of this. And we say, well, you know, that's ridiculous. The, the, scientifically, that doesn't make any sense. Well, this book was never written to be a science textbook. It was written to be uh, something that we, that we give to. It was written to be something, that, a love letter to the church. It's not meant to be philosophy, um, although it does carry some, some things that we can prove against philosophy. It's just written for a specific purpose, and we have to remember what that purpose is. And then, of course, there's meaning of individual words. We want to make sure that we understand those words correctly. But then there's the responding to the Word of God. If we really believe that this is the Holy Spirit speaking to us, and it is the whole counsel of God, and we're supposed to take it in, then we have to listen and respond to it. Jesus said we will know the truth about himself only if we are willing to do his will. That is, that we are being changed by it. Just because we experience something doesn't mean that we learn anything. I mean, you can sit here and listen to my sermon, and you can walk out the door and do nothing with it. I bet a lot of you have done that. I understand that. That's pretty normal. The only way that you're changed is by doing something about what you've heard. And after you recognize that, what it is, you know, George talked about this, it changed my life. After you recognize what the Holy Spirit is saying, then we've got to put it into practice somehow and have someone hold us accountable and have somebody help us in this process. So for instance, if you've got credit card debt, for instance, and you start praying about, what is God, what do you want me to do with this? And it finally escalates to the point where there's a crisis. And you start reflecting on what's going on. Why is it that I keep doing this? And the Lord reveals to you some kind of emptiness or void in your life that you're trying to fill through shopping or purchases or whatever it is. Then it's now incumbent upon you to take the teaching of the Holy Spirit and say, what am I going to do about that? If I'm trying to fill the void... 
with stuff, what else can fill that void that can replace stuff? That's actually something beautiful. Or maybe God has showed you that you're, you need to respond with more encouragement to the family members in your life or your, or your staff or your employees. And then you start developing concrete plans on how to do that. God's showed you. The Spirit has spoken. But you've got to do something with it. There's an internal witness that the Holy Spirit brings. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 2 to 13, it says this, And we have received God's Spirit, not the world's Spirit, so we can know the wonderful things that God has freely given us. When we tell you these things, we do not use words that come from human wisdom. Instead, we speak words given to us by the Spirit, using the Spirit's words to explain, explain spiritual truths. So we're going to do that right now. All of you who uh, are sitting here with us, and maybe those of you at home can do this too, I put a sheet of paper and a pen on your, on your uh, chairs close by you. And so what we're going to do is we're just going to turn to a passage of Scripture, and I'm going to ask you to uh, fill out the answers to this question. Every one of you, come on, we're going to do this together. I'm going to read a passage, eight verses, and I'm going to read it twice. And what you're going to do is you're going to follow along with me. The first question is, what is God saying in the text? And we're going to talk about this for a minute. This is kind of like, you know, we can do kind of like an open discussion here. Bill's got a microphone and he's going to go around and I'm going to read this to you. And the first question is, what is God saying? So what specifically is he saying in this text? The second question is, um, what is God saying to you? As you're reading it, what is the Holy Spirit saying to you? This is how you translate the text to a personal application, how the Holy Spirit gets a hold of you. And then the next question is, and that you can, this is going to stay private to you, but the next question is, what are you going to do about it? And be as specific as possible, all right? First question is, what is the text saying? Second question, what is it saying to you? Third question is, what are you going to do about it, all right? Some of you have this instead of just a sheet of paper. So turn to one of the blank pages in there, and then you can use one of those blank pages. All right, so here I'm going to read from John chapter 15. And for those of you who are at home, just listen in, and you can grab a pen and write down uh, the answers to this question. So I want you to just listen the first time around, okay? Don't write anything down while I, while I read this to you. So just listen. John chapter 15. This is Jesus speaking. I am the true grapevine, and my Father is the gardener. He cuts off every branch of mine that doesn't produce fruit, and He prunes the branches that do bear fruit so that they will produce even more. You have already been pruned and purified by the message that I have given you. Remain in me, and I will remain in you. For a branch cannot produce fruit if it is severed from the vine. And you cannot be fruitful unless you remain in me. Yes, I am the vine and you are the branches. Those who remain in me and I in them will produce much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. Anyone who does not remain in me is thrown away like a useless branch and withers. Such branches are gathered into a pile to be burned. But if you remain in me and my words remain in you... You may ask for anything you want, and it will be granted. When you produce much fruit, you are my true disciples. This brings great joy to my Father. 
Now, what words or phrases stood out for you in that reading? This is something that we call Lectio Divina. It's a practice that you can use in order to hear from God. I'm going to read it to you again, but I'm going to read it to you from the New International Version, just slightly differently. What I want you to do is pay attention to what word or phrase stands out for you. What word or phrase is going to stand out for you in this? And just pay attention to that one. I am the true vine, and my father is the gardener. He cuts off every branch in me that bears no fruit. While every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes so that it will be even more fruitful. You are already clean because of the word I have spoken to you. Remain in me, and I will remain in you. No branch can bear fruit by itself. It must remain in the vine. Neither can you bear it bear fruit unless you remain in me. I am the vine and you are the branches. If a man remains in me and I in him, he will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not remain in me, he is like a branch that is thrown away and withers. Such branches are picked up and thrown into the fire and burned. If you remain in me and my words remain in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be given to you. This is to my Father's glory that you bear much fruit, showing yourselves to be my disciples. So what word or phrase stood out for you? Bill, I want you to kind of help us here. Uh, I want you to just say out loud, what word or phrase stood out for you from the readings? Just put your hand up. We'd like to hear from you. Yeah, George. Without me, you cannot do nothing. You can do nothing, right? Without me, you can do nothing. That stood out for you. Anyone else? Remain in me. All right. Anyone else? Remain in the vine. Anyone else? No branch can bear fruit by itself. Okay. So now, you've got yours. You've probably written it down. Write something down, something that stood out for you. Maybe you even heard it just now. What is God saying in the text? He's saying that if you remain in me, you will produce much fruit. But without being connected to the vine, you can do nothing. He's saying sometimes we need to get pruned, and that pruning is painful. He's saying that that when that pruning happens, all those extra branches are going to get gathered up and they're going to get burned. But the whole point of Jesus' message here was to remain in him and you will bear much fruit. What is the fruit that you can produce? Anyone a guess of what's the fruit that he's talking about? (laughs) That's right. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, greatness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control, right? That's the fruit. What other fruit is there in the Scripture? Community, right? Building community, right? Salvation of souls. God's blessing is the fruit of the Spirit. You know, pardon me? Loving your neighbor, right? All of these fruit, you will bear much fruit. You will be able, capable of loving your neighbor, loving your spouse more than you did before. This is all what God is saying to you in the text. It's so important that we pay attention to the whole counsel of God. The Spirit of God has spoken here this morning. You believe that? Is this the word of God to you this morning? 
If God is speaking to you, then what are you going to do about it? What is he saying to you now? Let me hear from some of you. What do you think God is saying to you? To obey his word. Okay. God is saying personally to Carrie to obey his word. What else? Okay. So focus on the vine. Don't worry that some branches that got to get cut out and burned. What else? Right. That's right, yeah. Right? You're not, it isn't just one branch in the vine. There's lots of branches in the vine, right? So we're connected to a community of people. It's that community of people that actually help us stay close to God. It's this community of people that help us to say, look, you're, you're going off the rails. Somebody needs to just say, careful. Or somebody needs to come alongside and say, I'm here for you. Now the last part. If God spoke to you today, if this is God's word for you today, and we believe that the Holy Spirit is the author of this book, and that from beginning to end it tells the story of God's faithfulness and God's love for you, and His desire for you to become like Him, and especially in this chapter, that He's calling you to remain in Him. If that's God's word for you today, what are you going to do in response to that? I'm not going to ask you that because that's a very personal question. But I want you to answer that question for yourself. If this is God's word, what am I supposed to do as a result of this? Take a minute and think about that. What am I supposed to do in response to the fact that God wants me to abide with him? Yeah, George. Yeah. Thank you, George. You know, when, when Queen Elizabeth took on the, the mantle, the role, and she agreed to be the sovereign, she recognized fully from the moment she took this on until the day that she died that she was just carrying a symbol of the true sovereign, our Heavenly Father. And when 
people testified about her life and about her faith as much like what George just described, is that she carried herself in a way that she showed the context of the Scriptures, that the Word of God spoke to her, as, and in her own words, this was an anchor for her in her life. And when she had a chance to talk with Billy Graham, he never shared one word of their private conversations. He talked to her in private, and he shared with her the love of Jesus, and they shared it together because it was an anchor for both of them. And these two people have been wonderful examples, and Ida as well, have been amazing examples of what it means to be followers of God. And it all comes because we know the Word, and we let it transform us, and we allow it to speak to us. And then we put it into practice. You can walk out of here, I've said this many times, you can walk out of here with everything that I've said and do absolutely nothing with it. And it won't change you. Unless you allow the word of God to speak and put into practice what it's saying. Let me pray for you. Father in heaven, we want to thank you for the word of God and how powerful it is that these uh, examples, uh, men and women of faith who are quite famous and uh, people in our own church and congregation who put the Word of God into practice in their lives. Lord, help us to do that, to spend time seeking you out, finding out what the Word of God says, taking care with it, allowing it to speak to us. Would you teach us in Jesus' name? Amen.